everybody good and awake and alive. And isn't it good to be alive? Isn't it good to serve the Lord? Amen. I woke up this morning. I said, well, good morning, Lord. And I said, well, you're not, you didn't go to sleep, but I did. And so it's a good morning to me. And I thought, well, why is it a good morning to me? Because I got another day to live. Amen. Isn't life great? Isn't the joy of the Lord our strength? Praise the Lord. May God bless you with the joy of the Lord, which is your, is your strength. Amen. I've got a message today that I'm going to preach to you entitled, From Obscurity to Opportunity. How many would like to know that there are opportunities in front of you and that uh, you may be in obscurity? You may be in the side corner of an office cubicle somewhere. Think that you've been forgotten. You may be serving God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and you feel like... I'm on the backside of nowhere like Moses, and God has forgotten me. But I want to tell you something. From obscurity to opportunity happens just like that. And I, and I want to talk about what you do when you're in the land of obscurity today. Because I feel like there are folks in here and that. And the Lord put this message on my heart. So uh, I'd like for you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. And as we do that, Steve and Pat Lawrence right over there. Steve, wave at everybody. Lieutenant Colonel. The United States Army served 34 years. He is, he is starting uh, an American Legion. The first, listen to this, the first faith-based American Legion for veterans in the United States. We're starting it. Amen. Brother Steve is. And Rob Klein over here is going to be the chaplain. And one of the officers is Sonny Feck. If you have served in, in the military at all, we need you to sign up because by July 10th, I believe it is. Is that right? By July 10th, we need to turn that into the county, and there's a process, but we're hoping by January, uh, we're going to launch ours. Pastor Ron Martin, our overseer, wants us to help uh, start 11 regions throughout the state of Ohio. Nobody's ever done this. There is no faith-based, Bible-based, prayer-based American Legion for people who have served our country in, in the military to go to. Most of them are filled with gambling and drinking and so forth, and a lot of the people don't want to do that. This one is going to be filled with Bible study and prayer and seeking God. And some of these men and women who have served our country are going to be able to come, and they're going to be able to find Jesus. What an opportunity. Amen? How exciting is this? Fantastic. So if you have served, we want you to go see Steve Lawrence. Steve, wave at everybody one more time. Everybody say hi, Steve. Now listen, let me just tell you real quick. Steve served our country for 34 years. He actually worked in the Pentagon with General Colin Powell. He's a retired lieutenant colonel in our army. And I just want to show honor to whom honor is due. Can we show honor to Brother Steve Lawrence, who is now, and Pat, Pat for having to put up with that for 34 years. <laughs> Amen. From obscurity to opportunity. I've got several scriptures here. 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to turn to 1 Samuel 16, and then we're going to hit uh, chapter 17 as well. And so I, I want you to look in your scriptures. Don't forget version. Those notes are on version. If you have version, how many of you do version? How many? Oh, they're great. You, you fill in the notes. You hit save. You can always go back to them. They're powerful. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 11 through 13, and then we're going to read 19 through 23, and then we're going to skip over a chapter to 17. So when you have it, everybody shout a good amen. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 11 through 13. So he asked Jesse, Samuel has come to Bethlehem. God has sent him to anoint 
what Samuel at this point doesn't know David to be king. And so here's, here's how it goes. Are these all the sons you have? Because he's gone through all the seven sons of David and or of, of Jesse. And the Lord says, no, that's not the one. And so he says, hey, uh, is this all the sons you have? And Jesse answers this. They're still the youngest. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. How would you like to grow up in a family where when the man of God shows up and says, bring all your sons, your dad forgets you? He brings everyone else but you. (laughs) Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. You talk about obscurity. This, This poor kid was in obscurity. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Uh, it looked a lot like me, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was a good one. Amen. Then the Lord said, Arise, anoint him. This is the one. I love that. Verse 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Listen, it's very interesting. I don't have time to preach. This is a whole other sermon for another day. But the Bible says from that day on, the Spirit of God came on David powerfully for the rest of his life. Guess what? There is no recorded defeats of David in the entire Bible. He never lost a fight. When the Spirit of God is in your life every day, you never lose. Ever. Another sermon for another day. I'll keep going. Amen. That's a good place to clap. Amen. Amen. All right. Verse 19. I'm in rare form today. I love it. Verse 19, Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent him with his, with his son to uh, Saul. Verse 21 and 22 and 23, Then David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service. For I'm pleased with him. Interesting. He was in obscurity even from his own family out there with the sheep. And now God is beginning to rise him up into a, a land of opportunity. Verse 23. Whenever the Spirit of God came on Saul, David would take up. Whenever the Spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and, and play. A harp and play. Then relief would come to Saul and he would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. All right. 1 Samuel chapter 17 verse 49 through 51. Here comes his opportunity, reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine known as Goliath on his forehead. The stone sank in his forehead. He fell face down on the ground. And so David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. Verse 51, David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with his sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Uh, your, your journey from the land of obscurity to opportunity may come dressed up like a giant with a big old sword in his hand. And most likely will. Your greatest opportunities are usually dressed up like your greatest problems. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for what you're about to do, what you're about to uh, speak to us. Lord, I pray, Father God, that your word just ignite in us. I pray you would anoint me to preach your word, not in word and tongue only, but also in power and in deed. Father, I pray that that you would open our ears. I come against every distraction right now. 
I come against every spirit that is trying to come against us in any way right now in Jesus' name, and I command you to go. I thank you, Lord, that you have given us authority through your word and in the name of Jesus. And we take that authority now and command every wicked and evil spirit that would try to distract or or cause us to lose focus or cause us to miss what the word is you have for us today. We serve you. Notice, enemy, that the Lord rebuked you and the blood of Jesus is against you. And I thank you, Father God, that you're here to speak to us. You're a speaking God. And we invite your presence now to anoint our ears and our minds and our spirits to hear what the Lord is saying. Speak to us, God, in spite of me and through me. I just pray let everyone hear the word of the living God, not me. And I pray, Father, this seed be planted in the good soil of our hearts and grow and bear forth fruit in our lives. In the precious name of Jesus and everybody said, Amen. Hold your Bibles up. In whatever form you have, whether it's digital, whether it's paper, however, and let's boldly declare, Father, today, this week, by your grace, I'm going to be a doer of your word and not a hearer only, deceiving my own self. Now, Lord, anoint my ears, anoint my heart, anoint my spirit, my soul, my mind, and my body to receive the truth of your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen, amen. High five, two or three people as you're being seated. Tell them we're going from obscurity to opportunity. When, uh, when World War I came, Dwight D. Eisenhower was a young officer that uh, graduated near the top of his class from West Point. And he felt that World War I was going to be his opportunity and his breakthrough. He was a great young officer that at that time had never crossed the Atlantic Ocean. He spent the entire war training troops. And after the what was we know as World War I in those days, what was known as the Great War, after it ended, the army and the budget shrank. And he became a a specialist in tank warfare, along with two of his buddies, good friend, one being George Patton. He became a specialist in that tank warfare, and the War Department then said, well, we're not going to use tanks in the next war. How little did they know? (laughs) And said, we don't need you as a tank specialist. We're going to throw you into administration. World War II came. And his buddy, who was not supposed to be any more tank specialist, when he got thrown out and thrown into administration, his good buddy George Patton became the great tank commander that Dwight D. Eisenhower longed to be. While he was out fighting in the wars and becoming probably, arguably, the greatest tank commander this world has ever known, George Patton, Eisenhower went on to another job in administration and another job in administration and another job in administration, and etc., and etc. His entire career, listen, (laughs) Dwight D. Eisenhower is one of only two five-star generals that the United States has ever known, but did you know that in his entire career, he never led a single troop into single combat? Never. He got thrown into one lonely outpost after another. What most people don't realize is that Uh, prior to becoming the supreme allied commander of the entire allied forces during World War II, he was under complete and utter depression. He felt as though he had been abandoned 
to one lonely outpost after another. He felt abandoned by the army. He felt abandoned by life. He felt abandoned by God. His dream was to lead soldiers into combat. His dream was to become the great tank commander that uh, George Patton was. And yet he found himself year after year between World War I and World War II just going from one administrative job to another and he was in utter depression. But little did he know that there would come a day where he would go from obscurity on those lonely outposts learning what administration was all about and to the snap of a finger becoming the commander of the entire allied forces and became largely responsible for defeating Hitler and the Germans in World War II along with Winston Churchill. Little did he know he would become a two-term president of the United States and and use all those administration skills he learned in obscurity to lead this nation through one of our greatest wars, the world, through one of the greatest wars it's ever been. He was a brilliant, brilliant administrator. To this day, if you ride down the interstates, you'll see little blue signs that say the Eisenhower interstate system. Now, what is funny to me is, is that most civilians think, wow, the government was so nice. They built interstates for us. They did not do that. Eisenhower built that for for martial law so that if anybody invaded our country, we could get military from one part of this country to the other in a short amount of time. Interstates were built for military purposes, not for our usage, although we use it for now. Did you also know that in every seven miles of an interstate, there has to be one mile that's straight with no bridges or nothing so that you can land any aircraft on any interstate in this country. It's done for martial law and it's done for military purposes. How many of you learned something new? Eisenhower's the one that started creating all that. He's brilliant. Listen, he was in a land where he thought he was forsaken and God was preparing him for one of the greatest tasks that this world has ever seen. Could it be that you may feel like you've been forgotten? Could it be that you feel like you're in an office cubicle on the side of nowhere? Could it be you feel like you're Moses on the backside of a desert somewhere, wondering how did I wind up tending sheep and at 80 years old still living with my (laughs) in-laws? Could it be that you say, man, all I do is this, that, or the other in the church and it never seems I I just, I'm, I'm forgotten. Could it be that you think, man, God's put so much in me and it feels like I'm just in some land of obscurity. I want to tell you something. When God's time is up, your land will go from obscurity to opportunity just like that. Could it be that God is preparing you for what he has in store? Somebody say amen. Could it be that God is preparing our church for what he has in store? Amen. Human nature dictates to us that we are opportunity seekers. That's just the way we're wired. We'll walk through one door hoping that it will lead to another and to another and to another. No one can be blamed for shopping around from anything from colleges to cars in order to land the deal that enhances our opportunity to have the best and to be the best. We want to do what God has put in us. It's an innate uh, thing inside of us that says... There's more. There's greater heights to reach. There's greater things we can do. There's greater things in store. Amen. It's in all of our hearts according to Ecclesiastes eternity. We all know deep down inside there's something greater out there than us. Amen. And what we need to do is not get impatient in obscurity. We can't get impatient with where God has us because at the right time, God will exalt us forward. Someone shout amen. 
After all, the one goal we all have in common is achieving our satisfaction. That's just the way it works. God's put that in us. Some desire management careers or desire all great things, but then they'll turn down the, the years of education needed to make a little bit more money out of high school. Some people don't want to have a worldwide ministry, but will turn down opportunities to go out of town or across straight state lines because they don't want to leave the comfort of their hometown. They won't venture out. The gap between obscurity and opportunity can seem really far apart. So what do you do when you're in this land of obscurity? What do you do when you're, so to speak, waiting for your opportunity? I, I want to I preach on that for just a few minutes here today. Point number one is this. What do you do? First thing you do is you perform the task of obscurity with excellence. Everybody say excellence. When you are alone, give it all you got. Man, is there anything worse than someone who will not give it all they got? Do things with excellence. We willingly and enthusiastically give our maximum effort in all we do. Do you give God your best? Can you go to the next slide? Thank you. Do you give God your best? Do you give God your best when you're greeting at the front door? Do you give God your best when you are, when you are, are ministering the gospel out and about on these serve weeks in July? Do you give God your best when you show up to work every day? Because God's placed you there as a missionary. Do you give God your best in everything you do? Colossians 3.23 says this, Don't just do the minimum that will get you by. Do your best. Work from the heart for your real master for God. Everybody say, give it your best. Everybody say, give it all you got. Man, there's nothing worse than to see somebody half-heartedly like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. God's good. I'm so excited today to preach God's word. Don't you want to sign up to be a Christian? Not if I got to act like that. How many know what I'm talking about? Man, give it all you got. Take every opportunity you have and do it with excellence. If your only sermon is to a nursing home, preach it like you're preaching to 30,000. Jim Dingus told me this morning, he said, last week, he said, I preached at the nursing home and won two elderly people there to the Lord Jesus Christ last Sunday afternoon. Hey, Amen. And before he could take a breath, and he said, and I'm going back again today. Amen. Amen. Charge the hill, Brother Jim. Preach them into heaven, glory to God. If you can only greet at the front door, then greet as if your friendliness is going is to save them from hell. If all you can do is push a button on an elevator and smile at everybody here on a Sunday and welcome everybody here, then do it as if your kindness is going to win them to heaven. If all you can do is, 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 is whatever it is, do it as unto the Lord. If you play an instrument and sing, realize you're doing it. You're leading people to the throne room of God. If you're down there working in the nursery or kids' church in whatever venue, whether it's a small group leader or a helper, whatever it is you're doing to serve, do it with all you got. Do it as if you realize you could be winning the next Billy Graham to the Lord. Or the next T.D. Jakes to the Lord. 
that you are impacting young people for the kingdom, your being down there is going to influence them to get saved and their life will forever be changed. Don't you know you're a... You, you are, you are a, you're an ambassador for Christ. You're a, you're a missionary going out there for the Lord. Go with everything you got. Don't shortchange God or others. Don't, don't, don't not give it your best. Did God not give us His best in Jesus? Don't wait to get to this opportunity before you give God your best. Give Him your best in obscurity. With the obscure things that nobody else is watching. Don't wait for some big important task. If you cannot work well, listen to this. If you cannot work well in obscurity, what makes you think that God would think you would work well in the middle of celebrity? If God looks down and says he can't even give it his best at Dallas can't in obscurity, what makes God think you're going to suddenly give it your best in opportunity? It's like people I hear sometimes, well, I don't have any money, so I can't tithe and give yet. But, you know, one day when I get there, no, if you don't learn to give tithes and offerings with little, you'll never do it when you have a lot. It's like one guy, he was, he was tithing 40 bucks a week, man, and he was all excited. He was getting promotions. His business was doing well. He launched a business on his own, and, man, he started getting increased. So he went back to the pastor years later, and he said, man, he said, I used to love the tithe, but he said, now my tithe is $400 a week. He said, I, I just can't, I, don't, I can't bring myself to do it. He said, can you pray for me? The pastor said, sure. Lord, I bless him. Since $400 a week tithe is too much for him, bring him down to a level that he's comfortable tithing again, Lord Jesus. Amen. Point taken, amen. It, look, if you're tithing $400 a week, that means you're making $4,000 a week. That's $200,000 a year. I'll sign up, Amen. Listen, have you ever seen someone sweep a floor half-heartedly? Have you ever seen someone do a job with zero gusto? Don't look to your left or right. <laughs> are, people in your, are people in your job, are you thinking of people right now? There's zero gusto. They complain the whole time. They whine. They hate their job. They hate their life. I mean, they're just, you, they're like the lady on airplane. Everyone sits next to her. They're trying to kill themselves. You know, get me away from this person. Listen, true enthusiasm comes from God. God doesn't want us walking around like Eeyore. How are we ever going to show people Christ at our workplaces if we walk around bored like Eeyore and we do half, half-hearted jobs? Man, our, our bosses should think we're the greatest employee that's ever been. The people that we serve in our businesses should think, man, that, that's the greatest business I've ever seen. That's one of the favorite things that I have about Chick-fil-A. They put Christ forward, and guess what? You will not find better service in a fast food joint than Chick-fil-A. Amen. Just look at the difference. You go to McDonald's and look at the service you get there, and you go to Chick-fil-A. Tell me, it's, a, it's worlds apart. You get better service at Chick-fil-A than you do some fine restaurants. And I love the fact that they do that, and they put Christ first. Amen. We're going to bear the name Jesus. Let's give it all we got. Whether it's doing laundry or building a skyscraper, it shouldn't matter. We should enthusiastically do the very best and give it our best and do it with excellence. Can I get a good amen? 
George Matthew Adams said this, enthusiasm is a kind of faith that has been set afire. Wow. When we are given a task for God, we do it with excellence and with our whole heart enthusiastically. So what's another thing that we do? When we're in the land of obscurity, point number two is this. Don't kiss your opportunity goodbye. People kiss away their opportunities all the time. Two in the Bible come to mind. Judas Iscariot, we'll call him the kiss of the fool. Luke chapter 22, verse 47 through 48. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Wow. Now, I'm sorry. I just cannot find compassion or excuse for Judas. Fool is a terribly harsh word, but it fits the bill with Judas Iscariot. Look, I can overlook Simon Peter, right? He's bumbling. He's a loud mouth. It's just who he was. It was his nature. I can overlook Thomas. He's mousy and frightened and terrified and all that. That's just his nature. But Judas, Judas had no excuse. Judas knew better. Judas was not stupid. He was the treasurer. He had the ability. He had the wherewithal. He had everything he needed to be able to do what he did. He was so well established in his role of leadership and his acumen and his business skills that Jesus and the disciples put them in charge of being the treasurer. He had it together. He wasn't uncooperative. He was among the 70 that went out and did the miracles. Never once do you find him in the scriptures other than when he's going to betray Jesus, creating some type of rebellion among the disciples. He was not totally without wisdom because he followed Christ in the first place, but he was a fool. He kissed his opportunity goodbye. He chose the temporal and corruptible goods of the world over an eternal and secure relationship with Jesus for eternity. He sold out everything for nothing. I must say 30 pieces of silver. That was the equivalent of the value of a slave. Exodus 21, 32, if the bull gores a male or a female slave, the owner must pay 30 shekels uh, to the master of the slave, and the bull is to be stoned to death. Are we stuck? We need to go to the next slide. Uh, if the bull gores a male or female slave, the owner must pay 30 shekels of silver. That's what he was rated as. As a matter of fact, if you study this, there's, you, you get all over the map, but basically 30 pieces of silver was one to four months worth of wages. So many will sell out so cheaply, just like Judas. A man or a woman will kiss away a happy marriage over a fling with somebody for the office. They'll throw it all away over a $50 hotel room. A businessman or a businesswoman will kiss away their whole business over a $1,000 crooked deal. A, a, a man or a woman will kiss away their life over a $5 drug or a $3 drink. Judas kissed away eternity for the sake of momentary pleasure. He kissed away the Son of God. He kissed away his salvation. He kissed away heaven and all that God has in store. He kissed, he kissed a betraying kiss to the very one that the Bible says when he died, the earth shook. The angels sang at his birth. I mean, I mean, the one who the wise man brought extravagant gifts. The one who is only worthy to open the book of life and some of the, the books in heaven. He's the only one worthy. Uh, where Mary poured a whole year's worth of wages of, of anointment oil on his feet for his burial. This is the guy. Judas kissed away his opportunity for a few pieces of silver. 
Judas kissed away his opportunity to be one of the 12 disciples after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He could have been one of the ones to take the glory of God out in the kingdom and, and, and be one of the ones that turned the world upside down. But he sold out for something so meaningless. Orpah is another kiss. She's another kisser. But you find a lot of people kissing in the Bible and it ain't turning out well, all right? <laughs> Orpah and Ruth 1.14, as they wept aloud again, then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. We'll call this the kiss of the fearful. Orpah reminds me of Esau where he sold his birthright for a, for a bowl of beans, basically. Orpah was afraid to venture out and gain everything she could have had. Everything that Ruth did get. Becoming the great-grandmother of David. Becoming in the line of Jesus Christ. Orpah kissed away her opportunity. She was probably thinking, there are no more sons in Naomi. I'll probably starve to death in Bethlehem. Who's to say they won't just kill me there? See, the greatest thing you and I will ever do is walk in faith toward what you know is right. God called Abraham out of his country to a land he didn't know. And he went to a culture he didn't know, to a people he didn't know. Years ago, God called us to Cincinnati, to a place we didn't know. A people we didn't know, a culture we didn't know, and so forth. You cannot be afraid to step out and follow where God is leading. God was dealing with Orpah just the same as Ruth. One took the opportunity, the other went the other way. God has called some to fruitful ministry, but they have kissed their opportunities goodbye because they have been afraid to go. Here's something very interesting to you. I, I just want to show you this picture. I can't show you this biblically, but old Jewish historians will tell you that while Ruth became the great-grandfather, or great-grandmother, excuse me, of David, Orpah and her line was Goliath and the giants. She went and got married and produced a bunch of giants that David ended up killing. See, so many times the, the choice is ours. Which direction are we going to go? The way that seems right to us or the way that God is leading? Someone shout amen. You may even have to use secondary gifts for a season. You may be required to do things that for a while that maybe aren't in your sweet spot. That's okay. You may be asked to do things that's not in your best area until you get to your principal gift. That's okay. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, do it with everything you've got. I hear people say, Pastor, I have this vision for this or I've got this dream for that. Well, until you get there, do your very best in what you've got to work with. Give it all you got. What else do we learn? When we're in this land of obscurity, point number three is this. Learn what obscurity can teach you. Because it can teach you a lot. How many has ever read or heard of Oswald Chambers, My Upmost for His Highest? Anybody? It's a great devotional book if you've never read it. Blessed by millions over a hundred years now. Or right at a hundred years now. It's a daily devotional. Wonderful book, um, but did you know he didn't write one word of it? <laughs> he, he was actually, he, he actually wrote the messages for it, but he didn't like sit down and put a devotional together. He died actually as a chaplain in the British Army. He actually died of a ruptured appendix in Egypt. He, the great Oswald Chamber actually died in a hospital tent in Egypt of a ruptured appendix. He never left the land of obscurity. When he died, 
His wife took his messages he preached to the British Army and compiled them into a book and called it My Utmost for His Highest. My Utmost for His Highest devotional were actually sermons he preached to the British Army when he lived in the land of obscurity. Some of the things that you do in life, brothers and sisters, may never seem to get you out of obscurity, but God will take what you've done and pave a path for future generations. I'm talking to some grannies and some grandpas in here that you think, well, my whole life has been in the land of obscurity, but you don't understand. You may be doing things now that create opportunity for the next generation. Someone shout amen. It ain't always about us. Hallelujah. Jesus was a carpenter for 30 years before he was in the ministry. I know Jesus knew his time was coming, but don't you think when he was somewhere around 26, 27, he's thinking, you know, isn't it time yet? I'm tired of Joseph telling me how to saw this leg on this table. I know how to do it. How many of you remember when you were a teenager and you finally got out of high school and you thought, Hey, I, I, you know, I'm big enough to do this on my own now. I don't want anybody telling me what to do anymore. You know, he had to have thoughts like that. He never sinned in that, but he you know, he had to have thoughts like that. Listen, what can obscurity teach you? Patience, humility, loyalty, submission to authority. Zechariah 4.10 says it this way. Do not despise these small beginnings. Let's just say it this way. Do not despise obscurity. For the Lord rejoices to see the work begin, to see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. It all has to start somewhere. Can you operate in the humility of obscurity? Can you tolerate being humbled? Samuel Logan Bringle, you may have heard of him, was a great preacher in the late 1800s. By the time he left seminary, almost every great Methodist church in America wanted him to become pastor. But he had read a great book by William Booth. And he decided that he wanted to join his organization. William Booth, did, William Booth did not see this as an honor, though. He said, instead of being excited, he said, This is a dangerous man. He is dangerous because he has already been his own boss. And he will find it impossible to humble himself and come under the authority of the great organization called the Salvation Army. Bringle insisted on joining the Salvation Army. So what did, what did William Booth do? He made him the barrack boot black. Basically, the boot shiner for all the, all the Salvation Army officers. He thought, if he can do this, maybe we'll do something. Well, Bringle did chose to uh, humble himself. In fact, Bringle said to William Booth, If I am ordered to shine shoes, then no one will wear a boot from the barracks that is not the shiniest and the best that he has ever seen. He humbled himself and became a, a boot shine. Finally, by his humility, by his grace, by his joyful sense of humor, he became a great officer in the Salvation Army and the first American to gain the title Commissioner of the Salvation Army. He became so famous, they sent him around the world to preach the gospel. And one day in Boston, a drunk attacked him and hit him with a brick and took his voice for two years. And in the two years he couldn't preach, he wrote one of the greatest books on holiness you can ever read. Then his voice came back and he, keep, and he kept preaching the gospel. Basically what I want to say is this. In the land of obscurity, it teaches us humility. It teaches us dependence on God. We had somebody one time that came to our church and he was a drummer. Well, we already had two drummers. And we said, well, we want to do these accompaniments. I don't even know what you call them, but you, you know, the, 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 their chimes and all kinds of stuff. Thank you, Holly. 
And it was neat. It was a cowbell every now and then in rehearsal. I'd get on a cowbell and drive Holly crazy. It was fun. But we'd go and we'd have a great time and all this. And, man, they had to, we had this one guy. He was doing it. And so and we had congos. And, man, it was, we had this whole thing going. And so this one guy came. We said, here, we want you to do this. He said, I'm not doing that. We said, why not? He said, well, I can teach a five-year-old to do that. That's beneath me. I said, well, then you'll never touch an instrument in this church. If you're so haughty, you can't do what you're asked, and you're too haughty to do what's, what, what the limelight calls for. We're not putting you in charge of anything around here. Listen, we got to be humble. Amen? Point number four, and I'll close with this. What do you do about obscurity? Listen, you didn't get to choose your place of obscurity, and you may not get to choose the place of your greatest opportunity. With Goliath, don't you think David thought, in fact, 1 Samuel tells us, hey, uh, this looks a lot like lions and bears, and I'm pretty good at that. I can take this guy down too. Lions and bears are fights, but they're also educational as they prepare you for the greatest fights of your life. The opportunity of your life may come dressed like a giant carrying a sword. Wow. See, lions and bears are fights in private obscurity to see if you can handle the public opportunity of Goliath. More often than not, and throughout most of the scriptures, your opportunity comes as a harder version of what you have already mastered. How many of you are dealing with battles now that are way harder than they were five years ago, ten years ago? And what you thought was going to kill you five years ago, you look at now and you say, what was my problem then? Well, I've got, I've got good and bad news for you. Five years from now, you're going to look at what you're going through now and say, what was I so worried about? God's got this. Amen? It was the brilliant cartoon philosopher Pogo, tongue-in-cheek, who once observed, gentlemen, we are surrounded by insurmountable opportunities. Too often what we perceive as obstacles, no money, no machinery, no methodology, no manpower, are God's opportunities in disguise. Wow. Listen, don't miss an opportunity because it's dressed up in a misleading costume and looks like a problem. Some people have gotten halfway through an open door and turned around because they faced some obstacles and they thought to themselves, well, this can't be God. If it was God's will, things would go easy. I want to tell you, more often than not, when it is God's will, that's when Satan's going to fight the hardest. That's when you're going to receive the most obstacles and the most problems, and you're going to have to persevere and fight through. So can someone say amen? If Paul anticipated, <coughs> excuse me, problems through every open door, shouldn't we? Look what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 16, 8-9. In the meantime, I will be staying here at Ephesus until the festival of Pentecost. There is a wide open door for a great work here, although many what? Paul understood, man, with open doors, you're going to have opposition. You just have to keep going. Somebody say amen. Opposition can actually be a sign that you've heard from God and Satan doesn't like it. Acts 14, 22, watch what it says. Where they strengthened the believers, they encouraged them to continue in the faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's a message you're not going to hear very, American, very many American preachers preach anymore, but that is New Testament. We will have to endure some stuff, 
But if we will endure, we can't lose. If God be for us, who can be against us? Don't miss a blessing-filled Christian life by trying to have a problem-free Christian life. Many opportunities are missed due to fear. All opportunities and open doors are all set for the future. And one of two things will happen. We'll either walk in faith or we'll walk in fear. But my Bible tells me in 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and of a sound mind. The choice is ours. God loves to get us to a place where we can't do it. Because he said in his word, his strength is made perfect in our weakness. And so Revelation 3.8 says this, I know all the things you do. I have opened a door for you that no one can close. Woo! You have little strength, yet you have obeyed my word and did not deny me. And I love that. God is saying, listen, I've opened a door I know you can't walk through on your own. I've opened a door I know you can't open on your own. I've opened a door that I know you can't deal with on your own. But you're going to trust in me and I'm going to give you my strength. And therefore, God gets all the glory. Somebody shout amen. Is there an opportunity in front of you at this very moment that makes you nervous? That makes you scared? That makes you weak? Wonderful. You're in the right place. You are right where you need to be for God to open that door and help you walk through it. Don't let fear dampen the anticipation of victorious future. Many opportunities are time sensitive. Almost done. When Walt Disney was building Disneyland, he called a friend and he said, Hey, you need to buy up all the scrub land around it because it's, it's going to be worth something one day. Well, his friend dragged his heels. Disney needed an answer. Disney ended up having to sell it to somebody else. His friend lost the opportunity of an investment lifetime to buy land around Disneyland and one day become very wealthy from it because he dragged his heels. It's not if you miss your opportunity that God's just going to throw you away forever. It just means that when God has a time-sensitive issue, he'll deal with you for a time, and then if you don't respond, he'll get somebody else who will jump on it. That's the way God works. And the closing story is this. This is one of the most heartbreaking stories I've ever heard in my life. It's one of the most crushing defeats to Christianity I've ever read or ever heard in my entire life. For those of you that understand and have learned of world history, you know the Khans, Kublai Khan, Genghis Khan. Everybody's ever heard of the Khans, the great rulers of Mongolia and China way back in the day. Mongolia actually included China way back then. In 1269, Kublai Khan, the great leader of Mongolia, sent a request from Peking to Rome, to the Roman church. And I want to I just read his quote to you. He said, for a hundred wise men of the Christian religion, and so I shall be baptized, and when I shall be baptized, all my barren and great men will be baptized, and their subjects baptized, and so there will be more Christians here than there are in your parts. I mean, that's, this is a big deal. They ruled the whole Asian empire at that point. The Mongols were wavering in a choice of religion, though. Genghis Khan, or excuse me, Kublai Khan was begging for the church to come over and teach them Christianity. They all become Christians. It might have been, as Kublai forecast, the, great, the greatest mass religious movement that the world has ever seen. The history of all Asia would have been turned upside down for Christ. They ruled all of Asia at that point. I mean, you're talking about the greatest world power all coming to Christ. And the king of it all is asking for this. 
What did the church at Rome do? This will break your heart. Pope Gregory X answered by sending two Dominican friars, not a hundred, two Dominican friars. Watch this. They got as far as Armenia and could last and endure no longer and returned home. And so passed the greatest missionary opportunity in the history of the church. Two men couldn't endure long enough to take the gospel to an entire nation. Two men quit on God. Two men said that the road to opportunity is too great for us. We're out. One man, Pope Gregory X, thought so little of his request that he only sent two instead of a hundred. I wonder what those two Dominican friars thought when they took their last breath on earth and they faced a holy God that said, you could have won millions, but you quit. Wow. What do we do when we're in the land of obscurity and we're waiting for opportunity? We simply keep going. Never, ever give up. The great Winston Churchill said. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes?